You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. A few weeks later, I was surfing a Santa Monica beach break. The sun was bright, the sky clear. The waves were in the head-high range, the tide heading low. I had been out for almost two hours. No great rides, a few good ones. I decided to catch one last wave and call it quits. My choice wasn't anything special, a fast ride with maybe just enough shoulder to carry me. I took a few strokes to line up with the peak, a few more to catch the wave, and then everything got quiet. Too quiet. Surfing is usually accompanied by a dull roar, the constant thump of a few thousand pounds of water collapsing in on itself. But in those moments, I heard nothing. The sound had just cut out, gone elsewhere, perhaps Tahiti. The silence caught me unawares. I looked around, trying to figure out what was happening, and suddenly realized that it wasn't just that the sound had disappeared, it was that my whole world was now moving past in freeze flame. Time had slowed, somehow, like someone had turned the temporal tap down low. My brain and my body, my thoughts and reflexes, seemed wildly accelerated, but everything else had been reduced to a lollygagging crawl. Time was moving so slowly that I could see every inch of the water, every surface nub, every shadowy nuance. It was then that I noticed my peripheral vision was extended, almost panoramic. I had the strange sensation of thinking that I was seeing out of the back of my head, and the wave, still in slow motion, began to close out. I watched the wall set up, the water suck off the bottom, the curl begin to pitch. There was nowhere to go, and I was certain to fall, but I didn't fall. Somehow I sucked my knees towards my chest and floated across the closeout, dropping off the far end and into the next section of the wave. I made that section and then strung together a complicated series of maneuvers, despite the fact that I had never done any of them before, nor had I any idea how to do them. All of this was just happening. It was clearly impossible. Mine might be a world where I knew who was on the other end of the phone before I answered it, or what song was playing on the radio before the radio had been turned on. These, at least, were the kinds of anomalous events familiar to many. But a world where time slowed, where sound vanished, where vision worked in 360 degrees, and I could really surf? This was an entirely new species of juju. Unfortunately, this was not a species of juju that was meant to last. The next time I got back in the water, I had returned to my plebeian ways. Time went back to its traditional second-by-second progression. My vision was no longer panoramic. My aerial assault no longer a part of my skill set. In fact, it seemed that in my entire newfound arsenal, the slashes and floaters and whatever, had been lost in the dustbin of memory. Everything had returned to normal, but suddenly, normal wasn't good enough. Stephen Kotler is the author of the William L. Crawford IAFA Fantasy Award-winning novel, The Angle Quickest for Flight. His new book is West of Jesus. Welcome to the program, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Stephen, this book reads like a memoir, but it talks about the intersection of sports, science, and spirituality. Well, I had a bunch of anomalous experiences, shall we say. I had a bunch of things happen to me that I couldn't explain. The list is long. I had so-called spiritual experiences. I had out-of-body experiences that didn't make any sense to me. I had moments of time while surfing where time stopped, where sound funneled away, where I was capable of doing things on a surfboard that I didn't know how to do. I had fleets of coincidence show up in my life out of nowhere. All these all these crazy things, and it was coming on the backside of, of a you know a fairly serious bout with Lyme disease, and I, where I had surfed myself back to health. And, you know, surfing is not known as a normal cure for Lyme disease. And I didn't know what the hell was going on with that. I didn't know what any of these other things were going on. 
and I wanted I really wanted to investigate them and it started out as a look at why does anybody believe anything why was I believing in surfing as if it was a new religion because I was a science geek that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me and all these other things as well and one of the problems with Lyme disease is you're often misdiagnosed with Lyme disease with paranoid schizophrenia and I was hallucinating I was seeing things I I lost most of my mind in the ability to actually function I couldn't drive a car I couldn't walk I couldn't do a lot of stuff and I was you know as these things were going on I was really really worried I was going crazy so a lot of this book was my attempt you know a to figure out am I going crazy and after you know I got a little way into the science after I started talking to various scientists and I found out that hey wait a minute you're not going crazy at all this this stuff that you know for until roughly well, until the 70s is where it kind of started, but in the 90s, we actually got really, really good at the science. Um, stuff that was psychosis, you know, 20 years ago is now kind of standard biology. And I didn't know that, and, and most people didn't know that, um, unless you happen to be a neuroscientist or a consciousness researcher. And, you know, as that started happening, I did, I realized that, well, here I am, I'm about to write a book about the, you know, the neuroscience of mystical experience. And the only possible way that I thought anybody could get away with that is if, you know, first of all, you, you knew a little about me kind of driving you through the story so you had an anchor point. And since everything was so crazy, I just figured I had to tell the truth all the way through it and, you know, just kind of present things as broadly and openly. And if I was going to look like a fool or an idiot or whatever, so be it. This was my learning experience and, you know, the readers welcome along for the ride. Tell us a little bit about this point where sports and science and spirituality intersect there's 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 a couple things you should know first of all the annals of action sports are packed with all kinds of mystical experiences in the in the late 1800s a swiss geologist put together a, a monograph of it's called remarks on fatal flaw falls and it was a couple hundred mystical experiences that were triggered by mountain climbing accidents all the way up to Latin 2004, a guy named Garth Barista published a book about runner's high and its stories of remarkable runner's highs. And these aren't stories from, you know, kind of just everyday people, though there are some of those. He's got a, you know, Grace Buechler story. Grace Buechler held four or five different track and field records, world records for a, a good long period of time. And he tells the story of her very first national race where the gun got fired. She jumped out of the starting blocks and flew out of her body, hovered up and felt that she was hovering on the ceiling of the auditorium watching the whole race run. In between these two books are hundreds of different stories. John Muir saw visions and felt he was possessed during various things while crossing the Sierra Nevada, and he tells these tales in, in his uh, autobiography. Charles Lindbergh, on his solo flight across the Atlantic, again, this is published in his autobiography, got to a certain point where he was fatigued beyond belief. He was lost. He thought he was going to die. He thought it was going to crash, and all of a sudden, angels appeared on his wings and he could see panoramically 360 degrees and those angels guided him to Paris. So there's a long history of mysticism within sport and the mysticism and, and magic is actually more in surfing than probably in any other sport. A couple years ago Surfing Magazine put is surfing the new religion, uh, is surfing a new religion on their cover and the reason they did it is because every month they get so much fan mail from surfers who have had spiritual experiences that they claim they could fill a storeroom with it and they figured that it was time to put it on the cover because that just doesn't happen you know with the readership of field and stream so first of all when it comes to mystical experience and, and you know action sports specifically 
you know, there's a long history, but it's it's also there in regular sports. Larry Bird used to talk about points when the court slowed down and he could, you know, see everything and used to know what was going to happen before it actually happened. So there's a long history of that. Where it intersects with science and spirituality, in 1990, George Bush Sr. declared it the decade of the brain. And what that meant was money poured into neuroscience. And this money poured into neuroscience at the exact same time a high-tech revolution was occurring. So we got very... These things dovetailed together, and we got very, very good at doing a number of things. One of them was taking pictures of the brain, and all kinds of new imaging technologies appeared on the scene that gave us much more accurate portraits of what was going on inside the brain you know, during various processes than we'd ever had before. And at the same time that this was going on, a generation of neuroscientists who were really opposed to spirituality were dying off. And there was a whole new breed of neuroscientists who were like, wait a minute, this stuff has been around forever. Maybe we should look at that. One of the very common kind of spiritual experiences in surfing is this feeling of being one with the ocean. And surfers talk about it. It's very common, especially for whatever reason during people's first tube ride. It's fairly frequent that they, you know, they get into their tube for the first time and all of a sudden they feel like they're one with the ocean, which sounds like absolute aquatic hippie nonsense. This is being in the green room, right? This is being in the green room. And in inside the green room, you know, time often slows down and sound funnels away and it's very quiet and a lot of surfers feel that they're one with the ocean. And one of the things that, you know, we know about this feeling of oneness with the ocean comes from the work of a guy named Dr. Andrew Newberg, who's the head of nuclear medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Newberg wanted to know what goes on in the brains of Tibetan Buddhists during moments of peak meditation and Franciscan nuns during moments of ecstatic prayer. Tibetan Buddhist peak meditation is a state called absolute unitary being or oneness with everything. For Franciscan nuns, it's called unio mystico, which is oneness with Jesus or oneness with God's love, depending on you know how you translate it. So what he did is he basically took pictures of their brain during this period. And what he found was that, uh, he found a number of things, but one of the things he found was the right parietal lobe, which is a spot that sits kind of above the right ear, goes very, very quiet. Now, the right parietal lobe helps us orientate ourselves in space. People who have damage to this area or strokes to this area can't do something like sit down in a chair because they don't know where their leg ends and the chair begins. So this right parietal lobe gets shut down during periods of intense concentration. As it happens, surfing, because of the amount of variable components that go into forming a wave, mimics the same intense concentration as meditation. Well, during this period of intense concentration when the right parietal lobe is shut down, there's another portion of the brain which is like the safety and security part that every millisecond or so asks questions. Where am I? What's going on? What am I doing? And where am I is a a question that gets directed towards the right parietal lobe. And at a certain point, the right parietal lobe is going to have to answer this question, but it can't answer this question because it's no longer taking energy in and it's no longer putting energy out. And since this is the thing that helps us orientate ourselves in space, it helps us separate self from other. If there's no new information coming in and there's no new information coming out and you're saying, where am I, where am I, where am I? At one point, an answer is going to come, well, Since I don't know where the self ends and the rest of the world begins, as it turns out, you're one with everything. So what 10, 15 years ago was absolute psychosis is now standard biology. So when surfers talk about feeling one with the ocean or when Buddhists talk about being one with everything, they're no longer describing this nonsensical state. They're describing standard biological phenomena. Your work actually influenced the way you perceived your own surfing experience, didn't it? There's a point in the book where you describe 
you're surfing and you realize that all the things that are happening in your brain as you're surfing and experiencing these feelings of oneness. There was a point actually in Hawaii. I had paddled out. It was my very first day surfing in Hawaii, and I paddled out at Waikiki. And my biggest fear about, well, my biggest fear in Hawaii was surfing on the North Shore. But my second biggest fear about surfing in Hawaii was a fairly common one, which is where you paddle towards one of the outer reefs where you're a long way from shore, and, you know, a swell shows up out of nowhere, and maybe you paddled out where the waves were chest high to head high, something manageable that, that, you know, I could surf, and all of a sudden you're out there, and it's monster big. So on this day, I paddled out at Waikiki, and I paddled out at one spot, and it was okay, and it, but it was a little too crowded, so I paddled over to the next spot over, and it was okay, it was a little crowded, but a swell started showing, and instead of remembering the thing that I was afraid of, I saw the uh, spot, you know, next to it, and it was considerably farther out. And I'm, you know, not a particularly great judge of distance, and I decided to paddle over anyways. And I thought, oh, it's five minutes away, it's ten minutes away. And it turns out it was like a 20, 25-minute paddle, and I finally got out there. The waves were enormous, and uh, I was terrified, and I was freezing. The this, this clouds had kind of covered up the sun, and I'd been out for a really long time, and I was probably sunburned, and I was exhausted. And here I was living in my worst nightmare, and a monster set showed up on the horizon, and I realized that I was right in the impact zone, and I had one choice, which was, and the, the reef, by the way, was right below the, the water at this point, and I, and I realized the only thing I had to do, I was either going to catch this first wave, or I was going to take the rest of that set on the head, and I didn't really think I had the strength to do anything. You know, after it, you know, I had been surfing pretty consistently for a, a couple of years at this point, you know, since, you know, kind of returning to the sport. And I was terrified when that first wave came, but I spun my board and I, you know, I just paddled and I dug into it. And as I was kind of popping up to my feet and kind of like looking down the line, I had this overwhelming sense of, oh my God, I've been here before. And the, the, the adrenaline rush was all of a sudden, it was suddenly familiar. And all of a sudden, all these sensations that had been completely overwhelming and sometimes distracting and, and sometimes really, really mystical became things that I could work with. And it was the, it was the very first time, you know, I'm sure this is really, really common to a, to a lot of surfers, but it was the very first time that I had ever encountered it. And I was like, oh my God, I've been here before. Maybe I'm not going to die today. That's just great. Tell us a little bit about your experience with Lyme disease, which brought you back to surfing. It did. I hadn't surfed since a near-drowning incident in Indonesia in 1996, and I got Lyme in 2000. I was really sick, and, and three years later, the dream girl was gone, the dream job was gone, the dream apartment was gone, my savings account was completely gone because I had you know, spent all the money I, I had and more on, uh, on doctor's bills. I couldn't, couldn't walk. I couldn't think. I couldn't write. I, I couldn't do anything. I was in so much pain at one point in this that I had an orthopedic surgeon who wanted to operate on five different joints in my body at the same time, and everything was really a mess, and I was pretty suicidal. It wasn't so much that you know I was miserable. It was that nobody knew how long I was going to be miserable, and there were a lot of doctors who were like, well, this could be it. You could be like this for the rest of your life, and that, was, that felt like a life sentence, and I was really kind of thinking of killing myself. A friend of mine called me and wanted to go surfing, and I just started laughing. I was like, you're kidding. I can't walk across a room. You want me to go surfing? You know, that here's a sport that not only I didn't like it all that much the first time I learned how to do it, but it had nearly killed me, you know, back in 90s, 96. I really wanted nothing to do with it, but she was really insistent. And my ultimate thought was, well, you know what? What the hell? I can always kill myself tomorrow. 
I'll go surfing today. And and I, we went to a place called Sunset Beach in, in, in Los Angeles, which is a really wimpy, wimpy wave. And it was, it was a warm day. The water was warm. The tide was really low. And I could basically wade to the lineup. I, you know, I kind of stumbled my way out to the lineup. There was nobody else out there because the waves were so small. It was such a crap day and a crap break. And I sat down on my board, and 30 seconds later, a wave came. And muscle memory took over, whatever took over, but I kind of spun my board around and pedaled into that wave and popped up. And for the first time in two years, I wanted to be alive. And that was an astounding feeling. I hadn't felt that level of happiness that level of hope that level of anything in years it was i mean it, it, it was a very startling experience it was so startling that despite my you know incredibly weakened condition i ended up catching five more or four more waves that day and when it was over i was disassembled i mean you know she drove me home and basically put me in bed and i didn't move for two weeks and on the 15th day when i could walk again i suddenly found myself getting my car and going back to the ocean for more tell us a little bit about the experience of Lyme disease itself, it's a frightening disease, and many people feel as if it's the onset of madness. They do. Lyme disease is, Lyme disease is peculiar. Second to AIDS, it's the most, uh, right now it's the most widespread ailment in both America and Western Europe. It's a very serious disease. This, the, the numbers on it are peculiar. The CDC, and openly, one out of 10 cases get reported to the CDC. The CDC thinks they've had about 200,000 cases um, since the 80s. The American Lyme Disease Foundation, which may be a little gung-ho on their estimates, figures it's closer to 3 million. So somewhere in between is how many people actually have Lyme disease. But let's just say it's, it's a lot of people. Starts out like the flu, and most people, you know, get on antibiotics and get it treated then because now we know what we're looking at. But at the, at the time that I got it, um, which wasn't so long ago, but it wasn't, you know, people didn't think of it out here on the West Coast, so they never looked for it. Uh, when you you know you came in, I didn't have the bullseye rash that is the telltale sign of it, but it starts out like the flu and then it progresses and it gets into your joints and it feels like rheumatoid arthritis and really 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 I guess chronic fatigue syndrome um, as well. You you're exhausted and you have terrible insomnia to go with your exhaustion. So while you can't be awake enough to do anything, you can't sleep to recoup anything. Then, you know, your joints start swelling, you have phantom pains, which means that I'd wake up and my knee would be as big as a grapefruit and I couldn't straighten my leg. And by noon, that was gone. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, my right shoulder was that big. And, you know, that was the beginning of the madness because, you, you know, you're, you're like, what the heck is going on? Why are these pains moving all over my body? But then it gets into your nervous system. And for me, they call it brain fog. And that's a very polite way of saying, you know, I developed dyslexia. My memory was shot. I would, if I was reading a book, by the time I got to the end of a sentence, if it was, you know, anything over five or six words long, I wouldn't remember what was at the beginning of the sentence. I was hallucinating both visually and auditorily. I, uh, there, was a, there was a couple-week period where I had an ongoing conversation with my toaster oven. And, you know, that's, uh, that's not normal behavior. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really, and, you know, people will talk to you and, you, you know, obviously, a, as you pointed out, you know, a lot of people with chronic Lyme are often misdiagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And I, I don't know what paranoid schizophrenia feels like from the inside out, but I do know that with Lyme, you know, people will ask you questions and, and you'll start to answer and you'll see their reaction. You'll see what their face looks like and you know you're saying something wrong and you're, and you're going in the wrong direction, but you don't know what the right direction is and you you gets to a point where you don't actually know where normal is at all and you can't even remember it. So that was another of the things that I was dealing with that, uh, you know, surfing kind of pulled me out of. 
you went surfing in Mexico where you almost drowned and again you, again <laughs> you heard for the second it's a theme <laughs> it's a theme maybe maybe a comment on the wisdom of surfing <laughs> for you but maybe not well <laughs> you I've never been the smartest guy in the room you know I uh, I I was a guy who I was really how I got into adventure in itself I was 12 or 13 years old a freshman in high school and I walked in my high school cafeteria and I sat down at a table and god did I want a girlfriend I want a girlfriend so badly and I looked around this table and I went well you're not the smartest guy in the room you are not the best looking guy in the room you're definitely not the best athlete you need an edge and I was like you know what stories are going to be my edge I am always going to say yes to adventure so this crazy third you know, idea that I had when I was, you know, barely a teenager ended up becoming this driving force in my life. And, you know, when faced with two choices, I always opt for the more adventurous of the two. And I, I you know, I always say, it's not that I'm not afraid. I'm terrified. I'm, I'm way more terrified than, you know, than most people I know who do, you know, one, one third of the things I do. But I'm more afraid of being afraid than I actually am of the fear. So I just go at it anyways. And, you know, so far it's worked, but you know, there was a. I remember, I remember a, a discussion. I was I was having dinner with a bunch of friends, and some uh, one of the women with us was talking about a near death experience that happened. You know, she almost got hit by a car. She was very upset. She was talking on and on and on and on. And I was listening to her, and I was like, Why is she so upset? I mean, I you know, okay, this was this was bad, but why? Is she, and finally, I looked at everybody. And I was like, Because how you know I nearly get killed at least twice a year you know how often does it happen to you and like this was the only time it had ever happened in her life and I started to find out that my experience of the real world was very very different than everybody else's and maybe mine wasn't all that smart after all tell us a little bit about your early experiences with new age wisdom (laughs) and thought you before you approached this with science you took another approach didn't you well I if if I came into this world with any you know any belief about the world it was it was quite simply that there was more going on than anybody was kind of telling me about I I really just I had the feeling that the adults were lying to me about reality and uh, this was kind of you know backed up by you know kind of early encounters with some new age people but by the time I was you know in college it had turned into a full blown like Jonathan Livingston Segalitis. And I dropped out of college my sophomore year because it was 1986 and the new age was booming. And I didn't, they couldn't teach me anything in academia that I wanted to know. So I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And man, did I go down the rabbit hole. I fell in love with a woman who owned a crystal store. I had my tarot read. I learned to read the tarot. There was astrology. I lived in ashrams. I lived in monasteries, strange teas, strange chants, anything weird, new age, mystical, magical, whatever that you could possibly do to yourself or experience. I tried, I dove into, and I did it for years. And when it was all said and done, I could sit in the full lotus for about five hours at a time, and I never once had anything close to a spiritual experience. Nothing magical ever happened. And and after that, I, I figured, well, wow, I'd really given it everything I possibly could, and I found nothing, and I didn't. I wanted nothing to do with it anymore. I was just like, well, this is bunk. I became, you know, a really, 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 really hardcore, you know, science guy I you know I started writing about science I you know became a really devout rational materialist I wouldn't you couldn't even broach the topic of spirituality with me or religion I would just you know I was apoplectic or homicidal depending on my mood this was just nothing I would talk about and you know that 
I mean, the truth of the matter is that was the attitude I had. I was really, you know, I, I was a believer in the church of science until I got Lyme disease. And to me, the kind of the apex of the church of science was, was modern medicine. And here, you know, I had tried all these new age beliefs, these all spiritual beliefs. They didn't work. And then I tried science. And when I got Lyme disease and, you know, medicine couldn't cure me, I was, you know, I was left totally without a belief, which is why when I, when I talk about, you know, I started believing in surfing as if it was the foundation of a new church. The reason that was such a powerful experience to me is because I had already abandoned all of my spiritual ideas and I had replaced them with scientific ideas and my scientific ideas had just gotten kicked in the butt. So there was really nothing left. I didn't, I, it was a period of time, a couple of years where I, you know, not only was I sick and everything else, but there was nothing to believe in. I really, I didn't, I, I lost all sense of an operative principle. So when I found myself believing in surfing and it just kind of, you know, came over me like a flu. Um, I wanted to know what the heck was going on because it didn't make any sense to me. Now, you heard a tale. You heard it twice at Great Remove. Tell us a little bit about this tale and and, how, and under what ex, uh, circumstances you heard it. Well, I was in Indonesia back in 1996, and I was, uh, I'd met a bunch of Australians, and we had gotten really drunk together. And they had convinced me to go surf with them the next day at a place called Nusa Dua. And I was a mediocre, not even mediocre surfer, was being nice to myself. I had surfed for a couple of years, then I'd taken a couple of years off. And then I'd you know, gone to Indonesia, and I'd gotten an assignment to do some surfing. So I was doing some surfing, and I was you know, barely, I, I, you couldn't even call me an advanced beginner. And I didn't know that Nusa Dua was one of the you know, great waves in the world it's one of the you know one of the really big wave spots in the world and it's a challenging brutal hard nasty wave with a really sharp reef right underneath it and these aussie guys had you know basically said look we chartered a boat come with us whatever and i said okay sure and you know when i got the shore i looked out and the wave was way out there and i was like oh well you know it looks a little big and a little fast but i think i can handle this and by the time we got out out there i realized that you know these were waves the size of buildings, and I, uh, I sat out there, you know, for a, a good couple hours. And I don't know if you've ever been ribbed mercilessly for uh, for uh, lack of courage by Australians, but it's uh, it, it's quite it's quite a beating, let's just say. And after a couple hours of this, I you know I finally paddled into a tiny wave, really the smallest one of the day, and I and I did okay on that one. And that one was just a little bit overhead. And then another wave came, and I was cocky, and I was like, well, I just did that one. Let me catch this one, and this wave was about three times the size of the other one I had caught. It was just a rogue wave. It just kept, I paddled into it and I started getting to my feet and I basically fell off essentially what was a three-story building and I, you know, landed on top of that reef and then that building landed on top of me and then seven more waves came after it. And by the time I was done, I was, you know, puking water and bleeding from head to toe and I was on the boat kind of recovering from this, really, really happy that I wasn't dead. An Aussie guy I met down there, I didn't really know, paddled over to me. And said, you all right, man? And I said, well, you know, except for the bleeding and the puking, I'm just fine, thanks. He said, yeah, it looks like the conductor had his way with you. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? He told me this crazy, crazy story about a guy who can control the, the waves and the weather and conducted the waves with a baton made of human bone. And, you know, at the time I was bleeding and puking, and I didn't pay it a whole lot of attention. But, you know, 10 years later, I was in Mexico. You know, I got Lyme disease in the middle. I had already kind of found surfing. It was, I was believing in surfing. I didn't know what that was about. I had surfed my way back into health. I didn't know why that was happening. And I was in Mexico, and it was another, it was a hurricane swell, and I wasn't in any shape to be down there surfing hurricane swell. But, you know, after three years in bed with Lyme disease, you're pretty out of your mind anyways. 
and I might have been a little out of my mind to begin with. And I, you know, pedaled out on a, on a on a big day, and I, you know, once again got cocky and made a mistake and did something stupid, and a bunch of waves landed on top of me, and I got mashed into the reef and the rocks and was bleeding and puking again. And a guy was recovering once again on a boat, and a guy from New York I met down there named Ben paddled over to me. He's like, "Man, are you all right?" And I said, "You know, bleeding and puking, but just fine, thanks." And he said, "Yeah, it looks like the conductor had his way with you." And I went, "What the hell did you just say?" And that was the time. You know, here's this conductor story, this myth. It's like a classical Greek myth almost, and it's got all this magic in it. I didn't understand how this magic got into the surf story, nor did I understand, you know, why was I believing in surfing as a new religion and why it had cured my Lyme disease, per se. And I didn't think I could answer those questions. Those seemed really, really hard. But I figured if I could maybe track this conductor story back to its point of origin, I would get a look at how ideas move through culture, how myth forms, and, and why people believe things. Because whether or not anybody actually believed in the conductor, they obviously believed him enough for this story to circle the globe. I heard it in Indonesia. I heard it in Mexico. There was There's a long chain of people telling the story to, to other people to get from one spot to another. And I figured, well, hell, maybe at least I can figure out why surfers are so drawn to this story, and that might start to answer my question. So that's where all of this nonsense began. <laughs> Steve, tell us a little bit about some of the people you met on your journey here. Uh, I'm thinking of Jim White, and I also would like you to tell us about that mythic surf spot that you actually managed to go to, your experience at the ranch. (laughs) Uh, Jim White is a singer-songwriter, and uh, he's been everything. He was a professional... He was a professional surfer. He was a drug dealer. He was a fundamentalist Christian, and... uh, he tells this really, really funny story. His sister was Christy Brinkley's agent or manager or friend of agent or manager. I can't remember exactly. But uh, he was kind of having a crisis of faith and surf and, and didn't know what to do. And uh, she called him and said, well, you know, I'm, I'm around all these models and you look like one. And, and maybe you should come to New York and try your hand at modeling. And at that point, Jim hadn't looked in a mirror in like five years. And as he says, he says, the idea of going to New York and becoming a model was like waking up one morning and going, well, today I'm going to become an elf. <laughs> but he also, he's, he's, as a singer-songwriter and as you know, somebody with a lot of surf history, he is kind of a walking encyclopedia of all kinds of stories, especially surf stories. And just, you know, when I started getting into the conductor story, I had known Jim for a while. We had surfed together. We had done some really fun stuff together. And I called him and I... And he was, the, he was my first stop. I was like, Jim, have you ever heard this story? What do you think of it? And uh, that, so that was, that was how Jim got kind of dragged into it. And Jim was, in a weird way, we, I think we probably talked once every four or five months through the course of this book. And every time I talked, I would call him when I was at a point where I really didn't understand something or I didn't know where to go next or I didn't know how to proceed. And Jim would, you know, make some offhanded comment. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the solution. That's where I'm going next. And uh, one of the things that I was, uh, to, to answer your second question, I got to the ranch because, uh, you know, I was really interested. Well, a part of the conductor's story is it's fundamentally, it's a surf quest. So where did the notion of the surf quest come from? And it turns out it was Bruce Brown with The Endless Summer who invented this whole notion of the surf quest. Before that movie came out, nobody quested for surf. I mean, a couple California surfers might go to Hawaii, but it wasn't, it wasn't a thing people did. People didn't globetrot for surf. When The Endless Summer came out, you know, it became it became a thing. I got a chance. I had gotten to know Dana Brown. I was working on a story for Men's Journal when Dana Brown, who's Bruce's son, was uh, was doing a uh, was doing his film, 
and I, uh, I was talking to Dana and I told him, you know, what I was interested in and I wanted to meet his father. And he, he said, yeah, why don't you, why don't you come over to my father's place and, uh, you know, we'll all go surf the ranch together. And now I had heard about the ranch because I, like every other surfer, read Kevin I was tapping the source. I didn't actually know the ranch was a real place. I had no idea that the Hollister Ranch was, was something that really existed. And I didn't know it was, you know, one of surfing's ultimate premier spots. I thought it was a fable. So, which I thought was pretty funny that the guy who invented like the surf quest had invited me to go to a spot that I thought was, you know, that I thought was a myth and it turns out it actually worked and it was even better because when I showed up, you know, it, I showed up at the day that they were doing the DVD commentary for the Endless Summer 2. So it wasn't just Bruce Brown, but Wingnut was there who, you know, was a, a, had been a hero of mine, you know, ever since Endless Summer 2 and Dana Brown was there. So I got to go, so I did, Bruce didn't come. Um, but I did get to go surf the ranch with, you know, Wingnut and Dana Brown, which was, you know, it was like a myth on top of a myth on top of a myth. I mean, here I was a mythic spot with two of, you know, surfing's kind of great mythic figures. It was, the whole thing was just astounding. Tell us a little bit about your own out-of-body experience. When did it happen? How did it happen? And how did it feed you back into some of the science that you sought? Well... <laughs> My own out of body. I I have to qualify this so uh, so people don't think I'm crazy. There were there, we've we know a lot about out of body and near death experiences at this point, and, and and scientists have been looking at these things really really seriously for the past thirty years. So at this point, we've done Gallup surveys, by the way, and one out of ten people have an out of body experience, possibly one out of twenty, depending on which surveys you want to look at. So my out of body experience was is a fairly common experience, but mine was probably triggered by incredible fear. I was seventeen years old. And I went skydiving for the first time, and uh, which meant we had fake IDs. We went to this kind of really podunk operation in the middle of Ohio, where that we knew they wouldn't. They just wanted our money. They didn't care. And this was well long before you know tandem jumping or modern parachutes. We jumped with static cords and old army rounds. And a static cord is just a rope that goes from the floor of the airplane to your to your parachute. It's eight to ten feet long, and you jump out of the plane, and the rope you know, tugs your chute open. So I jumped out of the plane and kept floating right out of my body. And then, you know, around when it opens, it opens, closes, and opens um, before it kind of catches. And it, it does this too fast for the human eye to see. And, and I knew this going in, but I watched the chute open, close, and open. And then I watched my whole body. I, I had kind of fallen horizontal and I was floating through the air, falling through the air horizontal. And I thought to myself, Wow, you better relax because this chute is going to tug and, and you're going to get whiplash if, you, if you're not chilled out. And uh, so I tried to relax my body. And that was the last thing, you know, that happened outside my body. As soon as that chute caught, I was snapped back into my body. And, uh, you know, the only thing I can tell you that was different when I was outside my body, it didn't feel like a spiritual experience. It didn't feel magical at all. It just felt like a weird perspective. And I was just like, you know, watching all this going on. I didn't, I didn't feel anything. But what was interesting was there was no fear in that state. And when I snapped back into my body, man, was I terrified. One of the things that you mention is that the after effects of people who have near-death experiences, there are long-term effects that are somewhat uh, beneficial. Yeah, it was, this, is, this is work done at the uh, University of Arizona by a woman named Willoughby Britton. Willoughby's a, a sleep researcher and a dream researcher. And she also got very interested in post-traumatic stress disorder and one of the things about that we know, because um, we've done a lot of surveys of this, people who have near-death experiences afterwards, you know, on 
you know, pretty much every every survey possible are you know happier, more alive. They have a greater kind of spiritual sense of their place in the world, and they, they really have incredibly positive lives. And this is an atypical response to trauma. Most people who come very very close to dying are incredibly traumatized by the fact. And you know, post traumatic stress disorder is very very common. But people who have do die, who have the near death experience afterwards. They don't have any of these symptoms. They have an atypical response to trauma. So Willoughby got really, really interested, you know, in trying to figure out what that means and, and what that happens. And, and she started, you know, looking at sleep patterns and what's going on in the brains of people who've had near-death experiences. And she's she's found a, a lot of things that, that are actually different about the brains of people who've had these experiences. And that they do help explain a little bit of why they leave such, you know, happy and fulfilling lives afterwards. One of the things that struck me is uh, when you talk about uh, bungee jumping, the history, and seeking these extreme experiences, that, and seeking the, a mystical experience within an extreme sports experience. It, it's an odd combination, isn't it? Well, it's it? only an odd combination, you know, if you, if, you, if you think about bungee jumping as, well, bungee jumping, right? But bungee jumping was a, was a ritual that developed on the island of, of Vanuatu, and it was a kind of a, it was a boyhood into manhood ritual and, and a harvest ritual. And they used to basically build these huge towers on top of trees and tie vines around their waists and get stoned out of their mind on kava and, and jump off. And, you know, the idea was the closer you got to the ground, the higher the crops grew. And, you know, there was a transcendence experience that kind of, you know, occurred during, during this, you know, leap of faith, if you will. And, and that seemed to be enough to propel, you know, a boy into manhood. But it's, you know, it's not just the island of Vanuatu. I mean, you've got it, all, all the Native American cultures from the vision quests, sweat lodges, a lot, of, a lot of primitive cultures or native cultures, if you will, use really extreme physical endurance tests or, or really dangerous things as kind of transitions into manhood. And it seems there's, there's something about these experiences. I don't, I, you know, I don't know if they're going to make a man out of you, but they do seem to radically change your perspective on the world. There does seem to be a, a tremendous amount there. Tell us a little bit about some of the scientists you talk to about fear in the, the re region of the brain that causes fear, the amygdala. The amygdala. Um, I talked to a, a, a variety of people. What I was, what I was really interested in is, uh, you know, the relationship between fear and adrenaline sport and um, addiction and, and why people like, you know, Laird Hamilton uh, – keeps it's not so much that they're going to surf giant waves it's that the ante keeps going up and up and up and it you know these are these are really interesting things but you know the adrenaline response which you know you need to get the adrenaline response fear if if the experience becomes common and familiar it doesn't produce that response so you have to keep pushing up and up and up to get and it's not just the adrenaline response is a misnomer you're actually getting kind of a plethora of chemicals everything from endorphins which are you know painkillers and and happy drugs, they're, they're similar to like heroin and, and morphine as opiates. And you get norepinephrine, which is a performance-enhancing drug that's, you know, bonds the same receptor sites that speed bond to in the brain. You get dopamine, which is another performance-enhancing drug that helps you focus. But it's the drug that's shared by the, you know, same receptor sites as cocaine. So these are a lot of like wonderful happy drugs. But these are also some of the most, you know, addictive substances on earth. So you wonder why adrenaline addicts get so testy when they can't get their fix. Why do surfers who have this harmonious lovely sport get so territorial about their breaks well you know with surfing for example 
you know, you can't you can't count on the waves coming in. Some days there's swell, some days there's not. Sometimes the angle's off. Sometimes there's a million different factors. And and when you get a surfer who is kind of addicted to these chemicals in the same way that a drug addict is addicted to the chemicals, when he can't get his fix because there's too many surfers in the water, they're going to get really really territorial. If we define supernatural experiences as experiences beyond normal that are created by something outside of human ken and paranormal experiences as experiences that are created by capabilities that are previously undiscovered within the human mind itself. You've taken a lot of our perceptions of supernatural experiences and moved them more into the paranormal as science, neuroscience, has taken a lot of what we thought of as what was unknown before and has said, well, no, that's not unknown. We just now we have the math to describe it. You know, there's a there's a really funny comment that I heard somewhere along the way when I was when I was talking to, to several several of these researchers and they some of them were doctors who came from medical school. One of the things they got taught in medical school is fifty percent of everything we're gonna teach you is wrong. The problem is we don't know which fifty percent. You have you have basically the same thing going on with, you know, so called supernatural experience and paranormal experience. You know, these are phenomena that we just didn't have we didn't have the technology to study. We didn't have the understanding to study. We didn't really, and and I'm not saying that we have, you know, close to all the answers at this point, but we have, st we've started to ask the right questions. We've started to figure out how to ask the right questions, and we've started to figure out ways to answer those questions, um, which, you know, is the advantages of kind of living in a post-computer age and, you know, living in this, this high-tech world where we actually can start, you know, to scratch away at, at, at what have basically been, you know, magic and myth for, for 4,000 years, you know, or 5,000 years, as all of recorded history, basically. Now we're starting to find out that, that all these things are actually much more, you know, biological than we thought. You know, most of the top scientists right now believe that the human brain is hardwired for spiritual experience. Why? That's a question of great debate. But the fact that you know, we are hardwired for spiritual experience. The fact that there's a genetic component to spirituality. Um, these things are no longer, you know, these aren't, this isn't guesswork anymore. This isn't nonsense anymore. This is just established fact. We've been speaking with Stephen Kotler. His new book is West of Jesus. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.